Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Halfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. Our show today is sponsored by Blurb, where your ideas become great books. Learn more at Blurb.com. So this show isn't usually about what Michael and I are doing, but Michael has a new book out. It's called How To. Uh, Michael, I'll let you recite the entire beautiful subtitle in a moment. And uh, you're being honored with a big retrospective exhibition in the Master Series at the School of Visual Arts in New York. Uh, you're having quite a month. Um, yeah, I am. It's uh, sort of never happened to me quite like this before, and I never expected it to happen to me. But it's um, uh, a bit of fun, and I think it is, um, at least for um, people who are in New York, a nice chance to kind of see sort of a range of what graphic design can do. I tried to express that a little bit in the title of the book. And the title of the book is? How to use graphic design to sell things, explain things, make things look better, make people laugh, make people cry, and every once in a while change the world. And I think what I was trying to do with that was, um, for one thing, I like graphic design. I'm not one of these people who's, who's embarrassed about the term graphic design and want to just kind of expunge the graphic part of it. When people ask me what I do, I say I'm a graphic designer, and one of the things I like about that particular title is that I think it actually is quite capacious. There are all these different things that you can do as a graphic designer. And I think the uh, that range is in the book and in the exhibition and kind of playing that out was the fun of it for me. And in the chicken and egg view of the man, the myth, the legend that is Michael Beirut, which came first, the exhibit or the book? They, they're related to each other in that I had put off doing this book for a long time and then got the invitation to do the exhibit at the School of Visual Arts Chelsea Gallery. And um, that was almost two years ago, and I thought, okay, maybe I can have a, that book that I've been planning to do and procrastinating about could come out at exactly the same time as the, uh, as the exhibition opening. And um, so I timed them to kind of work out at the same, at the same moment, which was uh, both fortuitous and kind of clever, but also um, a little bit crazy, too, because it didn't put a lot of pressure on the book coming out. Um, in the case of the book... You know, the, the, the monograph, there seems to be this expectation that in the 21st century, you can't really, with a straight face, just put out a monograph, you know, and, ha and, and sort of like do it in a straightforward way. You somehow have to uh, um, comment on or subvert the idea of the monograph. And I think a lot of people have done that brilliantly. I think uh, uh, Stefan Sagmeister has, Marian Banshees has, Michael Rock has, a lot of designers who I know and like and respect have put out documents that actually you have to find your own way. It's a little bit more kind of uh, discursive or even confusing than you'd expect. And I sort of started out with my book, you know, thinking, well, I have to come up with some new fresh way to subvert the genre myself. But I don't even like saying the phrase subvert the genre. I'm not like that person. Right before I entered college, my parents gave me a copy of Milton Glaser Graphic Design. Um, which was really the, I think in many ways, the first modern monograph of graphic design. I went back and I looked at that, and that was a book that I had memorized every page of. It was my Bible when I went off to college. And there's something so straightforward and just honest and clear and unpretentious and friendly and welcoming about Milton Glaser's tone in that book. It's really generous with the images. The captions just simply say in this kind of 
um, uh, you know, engaging way what was on his mind as he did each of these pieces and each of the pieces pictured in the book. And I remember thinking how, how great that was and how much I felt like, you know, that I was, that I knew Milton Glaser, even though I was, you know, 500 miles from Milton Glaser and 500 light years away from him in every other way. I really felt like, you know, he was, um, uh, he became a mentor for me, even though I uh, had never met him. And the only contact I had with him was the pages of this book. And so I decided just to kind of do a book that was really just simply, here's some stuff I designed and here's how I came to design it, which is where the title How To comes from. It just is sort of, you know, your 36 or so problems and how to solve them, at least in my own eyes. So what did you leave out? Oh, um, I left out things that I thought were well-designed but didn't have interesting stories or lessons behind them that could, be, that could be kind of expanded or abstracted to have more relevance to anyone working on, you know, a, a, a similar but different design problem. Obviously, I left out things for the most part that I think are ugly and dumb that I designed that I am not particularly proud of now, although there are some passages where I show um, failed designs or runner-up designs or bad designs I was working on before I realized that there was a superior um, approach available, which I ultimately took. And um, I, 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 I don't really in the book go into any long philosophic passages about the abstract role of design. I really just use actual experience that I have as just evidence of how at least one designer can work in, in today's world. Now, the exhibition has a, a, a different organizational principle from the book because uh, I was um, uh, constrained by the actual shape of the galleries that SVA has in the Sterrett Lehigh building. Uh, they are four rooms, one bigger one, three identical size smaller ones, and I had to figure out how to organize material to fit in those rooms. And so I had to select some things that weren't in the book, leave out a lot of things that are in the book, and kind of get them organized so they made sense. The first big room is all about stuff that I've worked on that's in New York City. The second room is basically a display of these 100-plus notebooks that I've kept over the years and, and some early juvenilia that I think is kind of entertaining, That I, things I did when I was 7 and 10 and stuff like that. Uh, the third room is a bunch of stuff I've done um, uh, in the world of architecture, including... I think, the first um, public display of all the posters I've done for the Yale School of Architecture. And then finally, there's a room at the end that's all about logos and identity that I suspect um, people will find entertaining just because people like that kind of thing nowadays. So now that you've done this book, uh, what comes next? Um, my partner, Paula Scher, who did a beautiful monograph on her work called Make It Bigger. She said, congratulations on the book. Um, now, get ready, you're going to get completely sick of yourself, which is good because it'll force you to do something brand new. It's true. It's, it's, like, it's, it's like cleaning out your closets, right? <laughs> exactly. And then, and then all of a sudden, you sort of can put on a new wardrobe and sort of feel like you can experiment with being a new person. I think, and by the way, I think this is true with any designer, any of us. Uh, we can, um, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to publish a monograph to go through this process. But, but I think it's a um, process that all designers have to go through in order to change and grow as creative people. And now a word from our sponsor. At Blurb, your ideas can become great books. 
A Design Observer has a new publishing imprint. It's called Observer Editions, and we just published two small books and a new quarterly magazine with Blurb, as well as the 2014 50 Books, 50 Covers Annual, all of them using Blurb's plugin for Adobe InDesign. With Blurb, you can print one copy at a time, get it delivered in 7 to 11 days. Learn more at Blurb.com. You may not recognize the name, but a man named John Berg died earlier this month. Uh, he was uh, uh, famous to me when I was a high school student and burgeoning uh, graphic designer back in suburban Cleveland, because he was the um, art director at Columbia Records, who, among other things, uh, was responsible for the covers of Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen, picked Century uh, Italic for Barbara Streisand and put it on all her early covers. They kind of gave them an early brand look. Uh, uh, did Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits, covers for Sly and the Family Stone, and most notoriously and legendarily for Chicago, the, uh, um, the band from that town who put out a whole series of albums that had almost identical titles, um, Chicago 1, Chicago 2, Chicago 3, Chicago 4, always with Roman numerals, which I know you appreciate, um, uh, Jessica. Um, the, uh, each one of those covers was a different uh, translation of a, uh, a, a calligraphic logo that he had commissioned from a designer named Nick Fasciano, and Fasciano also then uh, was um, the man who built these incredible models of those uh, logos, including rendering that um, that calligraphic uh, logo, that's like the Coca-Cola logo, in every possible form, embedding it in the whorls of a fingerprint, you know, tooling it into leather, uh, making it out of brushed stainless steel, making it out of a chocolate bar, embedding it into a map, making it out of um, uh, carving it into wood. It just was this amazing um, uh, kind of demonstration of design and uh, artistic virtuosity in the service of, uh, of giving a face to this band that essentially was sort of faceless. Now, I, by the way, happen to love Love, love Chicago. I just 25 or 6 to 4, Saturday in the park. But I can't separate in my mind whether the appeal that that band had for me was uh, was just the music that I heard when the, the record was turning on the turntable or whether it was the experience that I think people, old people our age, excuse me, my age and, uh, um, and others had uh, go, going to the record store, buying a record, taking it out of its shrink wrap, opening it up, putting it on the turntable, and looking at that cover as the music played. You know, it was just amazing. Back in the days before computers and, and all the digital things that claim our attention, the checking your email, the checking Facebook, the tweeting, you, know, you basically sat and listened to music and you looked at the album, you looked at the liner notes, you really examined it. And, and bizarrely, I was finding myself thinking about this earlier today, likening it to when you were a kid and you sat at the breakfast table and you ate cereal, you looked at the back of the cereal box, right? And so the design of a cereal box and the design of a 12-inch, and they both had a kind of relative scale that was to a kid big. Um, but I think the idea that one really examined those things at, at close range while experiencing the music was those are sort of twinned activities in my memory as, as a teenager. Yeah, and, and actually um, the, the most talented cover designers uh, of the day, um, like Berg, sort of understood that. And um, it, was, you know, it was very common for, um, um, for bands to have uh, 
kind of a signature look that kind of created almost a, a, a visual brand around the audio experience. For instance, uh, you know, um, the artist, the sort of quasi-psychedelic artist Roger Dean did most of the covers for the, um, the prog rock band Yes, um, Tales from Topographic Oceans, Fragile, that's all Roger Dean. And then the, uh, the kind of hippie designer Neon Park did uh, um, uh, most of the uh, covers for um, Little Feet. And they sort of had this great sort of collage aesthetic. There's also people like Marty Clarwine who did the covers of uh, Bitches Brew by, um, by Miles Davis and Abraxas by Santana. And I like literally, just like you say, Jessica, I literally would kind of um, put that music on, open up the lush gatefold cover, and just stare at the artwork while I listen to the music. You couldn't like walk around, you couldn't go jogging or, or riding in your car or doing anything else with headphones on carrying a portable music player. The, the smallest music player would be in a suitcase, basically, plugged into your wall. Unlike you in Cleveland listening to um, uh, Chicago, uh, or, or uh, in your youth, I was in Paris, where access to records was based on whatever happened to jump the fence and make it to Europe, right? So, so my memory as a teenager of listening to music, it was a lot of you know Johnny Holiday and and you know weird French things, and then every once in a while. Every once in a while, you know, there'd be a Rolling Stones album that, that made my way. And, and I have to say, too, that um, my best friend in high school, uh, her father was the uh, ambassador from Burma to France and Spain. She had a bunch of older brothers, and they all had bought the same record albums because their port of call before Paris had been um, uh, Tokyo. So for some reason, there were multiple copies of albums with Japanese liner notes. And I got, I was the recipient of all the extras. And I realized now I should have saved them because they might have been worth something. But my first introduction to the Rolling Stones was actually through liner notes I couldn't read because they were in Japanese. You are, you know, Jessica, you're just hopelessly sophisticated and exotic. I picture myself in Parma, Ohio, 4161 Sarasota Drive, like laying on the wall-to-wall shag carpeting in front of my mom and dad's big hi-fi, like listening to... Can I just interrupt and say hi-fi? I mean, this is a word, this is the word hi-fi, which stood for high fidelity system. And my darling, wonderful mother, who is sadly no longer with us, until her dying day, referred to any kind of music as coming from the high fidelity system. (laughs) She never a hi-fi... In, Audrey, in Audrey's words, it was always the high fidelity. Uh, could you turn the high fidelity system down, please, she would say. <laughs> no, uh, um, one of the things I think that got me, that made me want to be a graphic designer was this sense that I had that the, the, the guys who did the covers were somehow unofficial members of the bands that they illustrated for. I mean, I really thought, for instance, that, you know, I, I, I think like, like Pedro Bell, who did all the covers for the Parliament Funkadelic albums, I thought, well, he must get to hang out with like Bootsy Collins and George Clinton all the time. Except like me, he couldn't play an instrument, but like me, he was like good at art. And, uh, um, and so these guys somehow got to partake of this incredibly glamorous world of 1970s rock and roll just by being artists. And, um, and I think when I became a graphic designer, that was sort of a dream that I had. Maybe it's obvious, but I think it bears saying that it, back in those days of designing album art, the way these things came to us was through this flat geometric thing. And that flat geometric thing was 12 inches square, which is enormous. Enormous by iPod standards, enormous by, by digital standards, enormous by you know the post-it stamp nature of the way we look at things when we're scrolling through uh, things in iTunes. You really, it was an enormous amount of real estate. And it's a 
thing that's gone now. You know, it kind of got uh, replaced by CDs and CDs by MP3s and sort of that, um, you know, the visual visual culture around um, around popular music kind of is, was almost, um, you know, just hanging by a thread. Interestingly enough, there's a huge vinyl revival happening right now. And um, I think it's partly um, just a hipster retroism kind of thing happening. But it's also a feeling that there's just something about the audio quality of the engraved plastic disc that um, that the best digital, digital technology can never quite... Uh, uh, replicate and then finally, I think um, I think it is the 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 joy that it that accompanies sort of that particular magic size one foot square containing a um, a twelve inch record on the inside that really is great. And I think another thing that was lost in those days, as worth mentioning, is this idea of. Um, the culture of art direction, the job description, art director, um, which really was um, uh, very common uh, uh, way back when. And I, I'm not sure it's even, it, 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 people today would even kind of understand or relate to it in that term. You know, uh, if you think about what someone like John Berg did, he actually gets the credit for. Um, uh, designing um, Bob Dylan's greatest hits, but we remember that particular release as graphic designers because of something else he did, which is he commissioned Milton Glaser to design a poster for the inside of it, which is Glaser's, you know, legendary um, Dylan poster, probably the most well-known, uh, one of the most well-known pieces that uh, Milton Glaser did, certainly the most well-known printed pieces that he did. And, um, and, you know, it was really the choices that people in Berg's position as art directors would make that had much more to do with what photographer should I hire for this, what illustrator should I bring in for this, what designer can I bring in on this particular project. As commissioners, they had a kind of genius and a kind of... Um, uh, you know, synthetic way of thinking. They would sort of think about all the options out there and how can I put these together to serve this particular uh, uh, challenge. And um, and I think um, somehow the uh, it could be that I think where we all sit at our computers under control of everything instead of commissioning original work, a lot of times people are just going to a Google image search and kind of finding what's out there already. And, um, you know, there's, it's considered kind of like more ingenious or more clever or somehow more honest or pure just to kind of forage and kind of see what's out there and kind of appropriate some existing image or something. Whereas I think in the golden age of art direction, and this is true for record covers, for magazines, for book covers, those guys were just, those guys and those women were just brilliant at, uh, um, at kind of knowing all the options were out there and working with others to create something entirely new. Uh, it's an interesting point you make, Michael, about this idea of art direction as, as not so much the hierarchy of design director to art director to illustrator to fabricator, but, but more kind of a group dynamic that, that is maybe commissioned and led and maybe curated, overused word but true, by the art director. Uh, but at the end of the day, that art director is making a determination about need and market and audience and saleability, but also about taste. And I think this question of taste is a tricky one. It's an interesting new book out. There's a, a woman who's written a cultural history of ugliness. And this book was reviewed in The Guardian this week. Uh, the, the article actually cites the famous 1960 episode of The Twilight Zone, uh, where a character's lying on the table and, you know, she's, the bandages come off. 
and uh, the, the doctors completely step back in horror, shouting, there's been no change. And of course, the face is revealed to the camera, and she's this beautiful blonde Hollywood bombshell. And, and, and then, then, then they pull back and they show that all the doctors are hideous looking. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the episode is called Eye of the Beholder. It's, it's, and it's often cited as an example of the fact that beauty or taste is an extremely individual thing. This writer, uh, whose name is Gretchen Henderson, has written this marvelous book. It sounds, sounds to me like a marvelous book, in which she really traces the idea of ugliness as a kind of something that qualifies, is qualified by context, is qualified by place, is qualified by culture, um, and certainly by the individual. She goes back and she talks about television. She talks about Hans, Hans Christian Andersen. Uh, she talks about the Greeks and the Romans. Um, she traces the history of, of what it is to have taste. And it seems to me this is really central to what a designer does and what a designer is paid to do, which is to leverage the expected, anticipated needs of the public based on what is effectively his or her own taste. To go, just to mention my book one more time, not to plug it, but just because it actually came into my thinking when I was organizing it, that long title, How to... Then it says how to use graphic design to sell things, explain things, make things look better. Those are the first three things I say. And what's interesting is that if you use graphic design to sell something, you can tell whether it worked because did someone buy it. If you use it to explain things, that's easy to tell whether it worked because um, now does the person understand it. But then make things look better. Um, I actually think that's a really important thing that designers do. And yet, that's the one that, indeed, has no kind of test, because what looks good to you may not look good to me. Um, I'm guessing that every horrible thing out there that looks like people exerted some effort to cause to come into being, someone thought looked good, and you may like some of them, and you may intensely dislike other ones. So that whole eye of the beholder thing is... Uh, 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 as uh, Ron, Ron Serling named that episode of The Twilight Zone, is very much a thing. And I think it's really a thing with graphic design. And because I think uh, so much of what we do is, um, you know, the functional requirements can be sat satisfied fairly quickly. You know, um, if you just take a business card, if you're designing a business card, it has to have it has to be legible in some on some level. It has to have someone's name and a way of contacting the person or mailing them something. But aside from that, it can be any color. In theory, it could be any shape. It could be any anything. And all those choices are really arbitrary. There's no right way or wrong way to do it. I think the arbitrariness is exactly what the problem is. So, for example, in an age in which aping form is possible by g given the ubiquity and, and really the sophistication of digital tools that let you do a Google image that let you search by image, that let you screenshot something, that let you make anything out of anything. Um, obviously, the, the ability of the designer to come in and preside over a decision is perhaps not what it once was. That, that's, to me, the arbitrariness and the ease of access to tools is one thing. But the other thing that I think is concerning about this, and you know me, my role in this podcast is to be the naysayer. So I want to bring up something that I think is, I found out when I was researching my book that comes out in the spring, I, I was very interested in this idea that um, we make things we think are good, but we don't really have any empirical evidence that tells us they're good. So uh, it turns out that in cognitive science and psychology, there's something called confirmation bias. So confirmation bias is the tendency to search for or interpret information that confirms your preconceptions. So... So, and, it, and of course, for scientists, this leads to enormous um, uh, destabilizing statistical error. For artists and designers, perhaps not so important. But if you convince yourself something is good, 
you convince others it is good. It is then good, right? It's the associative property in math. But it's not necessarily clear that, you know, you go in and you brand the Nazi party with Helvetica. Everybody's using Helvetica. You think about the Nazi party. This is, this is I'm making this extreme case for a reason. That I think designers who are passionate about what they do and make, and they fall in love with visual things, and they are very persuasive, and their work itself is persuasive, that it's very easy for things to become pretty and compelling and attractive and elegant and persuasive and sell things, but they're not necessarily good, right? So they're not ugly, but they're using the opposite of ugly in a way that may potentially have nefarious consequences. That's, I think, the bigger interesting issue for design theory and design his history to reckon with. Yeah, and I think the, um, I mean, all designers understand and try to manipulate confirmation bias. Uh, I don't think there's a designer within the, who can hear my voice right now, who hasn't at one time or another come up with a solution to a problem presented by a client and then retrofitted an elaborate rationale after the fact that actually had not informed the design process at all, but instead is just uh, designed to set up a series of prerequisites that magically deliver the client to this one and only solution as the outcome. And I think uh, we've all been guilty of that. We've all perhaps even taken some pleasure in that. And um, and that's all about kind of that, that cognitive process you're talking about. What interests me is my own experience with designers who have taken that process and kind of made it a all-consuming worldview in a way. And I worked for 10 years for Massimo Vignelli, who in fact would say that there are two ways for things to look. Um, they can either look good and beautiful or ugly and horrible. And, um, you know, the very first thing he says in the movie Helvetica is something like, the life of a designer is a life of fight against ugliness. And that our mission as designers is to obliterate ugliness from the world. And in, implicit in that statement... Do you agree? Um, I, I would agree. But Massimo's, when he said it, implicit in that statement was that we all shared a common idea about what was ugly and what was not ugly. And he said we only needed five typefaces, but your typefaces might not be my typefaces. Exactly, yeah. So I think when I'm describing what I think the mission designer is, I usually qualify, uh, make things look better or kind of make things look cool, depending on whatever your own personal interpretation of that is. So it's sort of like the out clause in the Alcoholics Anonymous uh, creed, which is God, you know, uh, uh, we made peace with our God, how, however we conceive him or her or whatever. You know, it's sort of like the idea that you're admitting this thing is out there, but all of us may perceive it in this different way, such as it is with um, uh, with our own personal visions, what looks cool. And and I think there was, you know, I'm guessing that in post-war America and uh, uh, for part of the second half of the uh, uh, 20th century, there was kind of a consensus about what was good design and what was bad design, quote-unquote, around both those terms. Uh, certainly, Thomas Watson at IBM wrote a whole essay called uh, um, good design is good business and makes a very persuasive case for the relationship of those two things without ever defining what good design quote unquote is. You know, the assumption was good design is the kind of design that's done by Paul Rand and Eero Saarinen and, you know, and Elliot Noyes and Charles and Ray Eames, you know, and bad design is done by people who aren't as talented as them. But now I think you could never make that sort of um, binary statement. Uh, there are too many people with too many ideas. I think, too, coming out of, of the war and the first half of the 20th century and the social and political dissent 
uh, around which many of those, certainly the European expats who came to Black Mountain College from the Bauhaus, from war-torn Germany and so forth, I think that that language of neutrality that was instilled in and by them in the second half of the 20th century uh, came about as a kind of a, a hopeful, wishful gesture around peace, <laughs> as much as it may be read in as 2020 hindsight as a kind of fascistic way of just tamping down any kind of variation, right? So you could say that all those humanist typefaces, all of that very kind of Swiss, organized, elegant, and it is, it's beautiful, and it's it's hard won. I mean, having, having gone through an education taught by those people who came out of those more turbulent uh, uh, backgrounds in countries where uh, having an opinion was maybe not as easy, the idea that coming up with some neutral language made sense makes a lot of sense now looking back. And now, you know, you've got, uh, you know, a good half a century on, you've got people who are reverting to the handmade and steampunk and 12-inch record albums, looking for something that's maybe a little more idiosyncratic. And I think the reason why this book on what constitutes ugliness is interesting now is that this is the moment in history that we can look back. And within recent memory, we've got both of those poles. We've got the maker fairs and the and the kind of you know people aping form and people inventing things. And we've got a return to craft and calligraphy and the handmade and vintage and where the word vintage is suddenly a prefix that means, you know, 1995, which makes me feel even more antediluvian than I am. But I, th I think it's a really, I'm really looking forward to reading this book, I have to say. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. You can find links there to the things we discussed today. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. Let us know what you thought of the show and if there's something you want to hear us talk about next time. You can subscribe to the Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash the observatory. That's designobserver.com slash the observatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune into our other podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman. A big thanks to Blurb for sponsoring this episode of the Observatory. The books we are publishing with Blurb under the Observer Editions imprint are available there or in our shop, which you can find at shop.designobserver.com. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you soon. <laughs>